Welcome to Product Coffee, a podcast where product management leaders share stories, advice, and thoughts on all things product over a cup of coffee. Grab a cup of joe and join us to level up your product career 30 minutes at a time. Welcome to Product Coffee. Excited to have a return guest. Dan Olson on the pod. Thanks for joining us, Dan. My pleasure, Kevin and Zach. Great to be here. Well, today we're going to be uh, discussing a new topic of Dan's um, that he's kind of put more emphasis on. I've seen a lot more social posts around this and, and kind of emphasis around the enterprise product management. And so we're going to dive into that with him today. So thank you again for joining us. I'm particularly interested because I've worked at some larger companies. I've worked with a lot of larger companies. Much of my experience has been consumer, but with a component of enterprise where we're building for consumer products for users, but we'll have content that is also facilitated by third-party merchants or brands. So I've had a little bit of experience dealing with like merchant and client requests, but I, w- I would love to, I'd love to learn a little bit more about this. So it, it <laughs> yeah, no, initially my, my first thought was enterprise. Oh, like at a big enterprise organization type of product mm-hmm. management. And then, mm-hmm. so, so tell me about that. Yeah. What is the primary differences when we use that term enterprise versus yeah. consumer? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It has to do, it has to do with who you're selling to, who's the target market, right? So you could actually be an enterprise startup. It means you're selling to enterprises, which are the larger companies, right? So you typically define the market as consumers. You might, some people get specific and above that are prosumers, like professional consumers. And then you get to SMB, small and medium businesses, and then to enterprise. And you can think of it like the Fortune 500, Fortune 100, Fortune 10. Like, you know, it's kind of like the biggest company kind of moving up. And oftentimes you see companies start at SMB and then they, they move up, if you will. And moving up means like the revenue size of the company. How much revenue is that company? What's their market cap? How many employees? Things like that. So enterprise, also called B2B, business to business, because one business is trying to market or sell to another business, is that. And B2C, business to consumer, is when you're selling to consumers, right? So a lot of the apps that we use as consumers, they're just... B2C apps, like all the games you play on your iPhone, that's B2C. You're a consumer, right? Um, Facebook has a B2C component that we all use, but then they also sell to advertisers, which is a B2B component, right? So some businesses have a mix. And then there's one other category, which is B2B2C, which is like we're selling to businesses, but we're selling them a tool that they're going to turn around and use with their customers. So that's an interesting blend another blend where it's like, okay, we got to listen to the business's needs, but at the end of the day, we also need to make sure their end customers are successful. So that's kind of like the the acronym soup there of, of, of what we do. Most people in product management are dealing with those two-sided marketplaces, or in some cases, multi-sided markets, like you mentioned. Now, when you're kind of dealing with customer problems on both sides of the coin, what is uniquely different in the B2B or enterprise focus that you don't experience as much on the consumer side. It's interesting because every once in a while, someone who's done B2C will go to B2B or vice versa. And it can be a little different. I mean, one of the biggest differences is the number of customers in your market, right? So like Facebook, how many customers are in their market? Billions of customers are in their market, right? It's not like any one customer is going to say, hey, Facebook, I need you to build X for me, right? They may request it, but you're dealing with the masses. Whereas depending on your enterprise software category, you know, there might be hundreds of companies in your market or thousands of companies in your market. Or on the other end, say you're building, you know, stuff for NASA or something, maybe it's just two or three companies. So so it's much more, it's called concentrated. So your, your client base is more concentrated. And therefore, each client tends to have more market power and can say, hey, this is IBM. Here's what I need you to build for me, little startup, right? They So that kind of market power can change quite a bit. And especially speaking of enterprise startups, you know, startups... Uh, startups by definition are non-profitable. So they, they haven't, they haven't got to break even yet. So they raise some VC money that buys them, you know, two years of runway, and then they have to generate enough revenue and to raise another round. And eventually if they keep going, they get to the point of being break even. Right. So as a result, startups, enterprise startups, especially are very focused on generating revenue. Well, when you've got big companies calling on you and you're a little startup, they're probably going to be like, here's what you need to build for me. They're going to tell you what to build, right? They're going to dictate solutions. They're not going to be like, oh, you know, just take what you want to build. And so that can happen a lot. And then when you're a startup and you're trying to get to break even, you're probably going to say yes to any big deal that comes your way, <laughs> right? 
no matter what they're asking for, you're going to be, oh yeah, we can do that. I joke, I like to make, I call it chasing revenue. And I like to pick on the enterprise salespeople. I usually show up, you know, a little, uh, uh, Glenn Glary, Glenn Ross, always be closing photo of, you know, uh, Alec Baldwin out there doing his thing. But, and it's like, you know, imagine you're a little startup and your salesperson is calling on Google to try to sell your enterprise SaaS solution to Google. And the, the person at Google goes, well, is your new product going to have feature A? Before I sign this contract, I want to know, is it going to have feature A? What does the salesperson say? Oh, yeah, yeah, definitely. Oh, we'll build feature A. Yeah, I just signed the contract. Oh, yeah, team, we'll get B and C out there too. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, put, I, I just signed a $10 million contract with Google. We got to build this feature, right? They will commit things on your roadmap that weren't even on your roadmap, right? Oh, I'm and, experiencing and, that so many times. Yes, yeah, absolutely. Right? Yeah, so, so that's what can happen. You get a combo where the clients have a strong voice, sales has a strong voice, and the next, next thing you know, you're kind of a sales-driven company. So a lot of early-stage enterprise startups go sales-driven. And what happens is, you know, the different clients are recommending random different features. And they don't really make sense together as a product package or suite. But you want that revenue, so you say yes. Next thing you know, you've got this product. It's like this Frankenstein product that's got all these random features that don't really go into a coherent product strategy. Here where I live in Silicon Valley, we have a, um, an attraction called the Winchester Mystery House, which is uh, basically it's a house that the person that owned it thought they saw ghosts and all this stuff. And so they basically like design, they would constantly redesign the inside of the house. On the outside, it looks like a normal house. You go inside, one room is all brick. The next room is all wood. There's a set of stairs that go nowhere to the roof, to the ceiling, basically, and they just end. So that's kind of like if you say yes to all the customer requests, you're kind of building a Winchester mystery house where it doesn't really make sense, right? So, so that's part of it. Whereas more in B2C, you're like, yeah, we're listening to customers. We're listening to the feedback. But we in product, they usually have a heavier hand in the product roadmap without such a strong influence from sales. Because in B2C, there's not salespeople calling, you know, taking customers out to dinner, <laughs> you know, steak dinners and wine, trying to get them to sign the contract. There's marketing, but it's it's not usually not as strong a voice at the table, right? So usually, I hate to generalize, but in general, product management tends to be more empowered because of those dynamics. Product management tends to be more empowered when it comes to the product roadmap and the strategy and making those prioritization calls in B2C companies than in B2B companies, right? So the trick here is, yeah, of course we want to get the revenue, but let's try to marry the requests we're getting with some sense of what our product strategy is. Because what you want to do is avoid building one-offs. You, you know, just if IBM needs this one thing, you build an anomaly for them. This other company, you build, you're building these one-offs. That's not leveraging. And what you end up doing is you end up being a custom software development shop. And I've actually had clients. They're like, hey, you know, we we said yes to these 10 different clients. We build a custom solution for each of them. None of it's scalable. They're not all on the same platform. We can't maintain it. We want to get out of this custom software development and build a real product, you know, and, and, and so some companies paint themselves in their corner that way. That's that's really interesting. And I've noticed that as well, that the one off uh, feature request, especially if you have a product that is meant to be used by a variety of customers, even in B2B, the features don't fit together because they're not part of a singular product vision or strategy. They're not really part of a, a, a real design journey that's been put together. And then you have the Winchester doorway on the second floor that opens up into things thin air and that your customer might just fall out of. I also think it's interesting that you talked about how product management is maybe more empowered, but also you kind of live or die by your your product market fit as an earlier consumer startup. And so you're not going to get as far if you're not listening to customers. Whereas with an, a, a startup enterprise business, if you secure a deal or two, that can make you last quite a while. And so it can there's almost maybe more of a danger of not finding that product market fit because you have the revenue, which can give you a false sense of security. That's a good point because in general, and that's a great point, Zach, which is in general, the dollar amounts of revenue you're getting per customer are way higher in enterprise, right? How much does Facebook make on a person? We're not paying, but when they're at, when, if you're not the, if, 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 if you're not paying for the product, you are the product, you know, like you're, you know, maybe they're making what five, 10 bucks a year off us on ads or something, right? Um, at an enterprise, you sell some, you know, million dollar deal. So the dollar values are really high, like you said. So yeah, you're right. And, and in a sense, it's a double edged sword, that direct coupling with the customer, you, you know, IBM is telling you what they want. They say, if you build X, I will pay you Y dollars. That's kind of nice to have that tight feedback loop of dollars with what you're building. To your point, you, you know, you're gonna, you're gonna earn more dollars, and you're gonna have that tight coupling. 
with consumer business products, it does, it can feel more like of a hit business, like movies or, you know, hit games. It's like, yeah, we got a million different consumer apps out there. Which one's going to hit the jackpot and really get viral and really have engagement? It can feel more like that. Now, I do think in B2C, you still can be very customer centric and listen very closely to customer feedback. It's not as direct as the paycheck in the enterprise model, but I do think you can listen to feedback to get to product market fit. But that that is an important difference that um, usually you can generate higher amounts of revenue sooner to buy you more runway. So there's kind of a short term incentive to listen to what they're telling, what a enterprise client is telling you they want, because there's a they'll they'll give you the money right now. But kind of as you look at your longer term strategy, it can you can create a, a stairway to nowhere where. You know, a year from now, if you haven't solved their real problems, you know, again, customers, whether they're a large enterprise or a single consumer, they don't always know exactly what they need. They just have problems and they, they will tell you things that they need, but those stem from problems. And I, you know, I think that's kind of a, a crux of product management, but I'd, I'd just love to hear a little bit about what makes a great product manager in that context where you have maybe these incentives that can lead you astray a little bit? Like what what makes someone a great product manager in enterprise versus B2C when there is some of this risk? I think you touched on something that's really important. It's important for both B2C and B2B, but it is very prevalent in B2B, which is when clients come and tell you what they want from your product, it is almost always a solution that they ask for. I need you to build me feature X. And when sales comes and asks you, they the same thing. I need you to build me feature Y. And to your point, there's a very important, and, and in my work, I highlight this a lot, distinction between solutions and problems. And so coupled with that short-term incentive, there's a risk to say, just build feature X. They're going to give us the money. But the number of times I've seen a little, a small startup manage to get some big Fortune 100 clients and the Fortune 100 client said, here's the exact RFP of what you're going to build for us. And the startup says, yes, sir, yes, ma'am. They salute. They go off. They build it. And then the big client never even uses it because they weren't even clear on what their needs were, right? So this solutionitis, everybody's got it. So, And, and the problem is in I the B2C that world, yeah, solution, <laughs> solution, solutionitis. solutionitis. It's like in a B2C world, you're not going to listen to any one customer that it's going to happen. So it's up to your – the solutionitis is – is in your PM team or the degree of solution is strictly within your PM team, right? But with a B2, with a B2B company, even if the PM team doesn't have solution the sales team probably does, the clients probably do. And then some of my favorite examples are, you know, like they hear a podcast or they're in the shower or they have a great idea. They come in, drop everything. What's our blockchain strategy? We need blockchain, right? You know, and, or AI, you know, and I, as I like to point out, like, is blockchain a problem or a solution? It's a solution. Is AI a problem? It's a solution, right? So it's almost always the shiny object syndrome that comes is like, but is a that's solution. a real problem though, right? I mean, like if you're, it if is. you're a struggling startup and you're looking to continue to do what you're doing, right. And, and, and you have this runway that is, is very near or non-existing, right. And you have this debt you have to pay off. How how do you actually how are you successful in that? Is this like a is this just a non-win situation where it's like you have to take that to then continue? Or is it um like how do you kind of manage that when you're in that thick of that situation? What it really comes down to is I basically core PM skills of do we really understand the problem that our technology, our solution is gonna solve for people? And do we really understand the market and the market segmentation to know that it's going to solve this problem for this group of people. And while we may start out with with this one company and we'll talk to other companies, if you've got a vision of how it's going to meet broader needs, then that sets you up to be build something that's less idiosyncratic. If you don't have an opinion about what the broader solution for the broader market is, then you're just going to randomly take the Winchester Mystery House features. But if you're like, you know, and one thing you can just ask is, you know, is, is ask yourself is, okay, you know, big prospective client A is asking for features one, two, and three. Let me just think about each of those features and see how how much each of those would apply to the rest of our market. Like, let's say we're going after the legal market. Is it just this one legal company that wants it? Is it, you know, and you can just use rough numbers. Like, you know, is it like a quarter of the market? Is it half the market? It's three quarters or like almost everybody's going to need it. And a simple filter like that, you can say, you know what, let's prioritize the features that are going to benefit mo- many companies in this market 
and try to deprioritize features that that we believe are one-offs, right? But in order to make that call, you have to be knowledgeable about the market. You know, you have to kind of done a lot of discovery research and, and have an opinion and know, and, and that gives you the data and the evidence and therefore the backbone to stand up and say, you know what, I know they're asking for these four things, but here's why we should really try to talk them out of that one feature. That's just going to be a one-off for them. These other three these other three are relevant to the rest of the market and they fit with our product strategy. So if you don't have a product strategy, you can't tell how well the, the requests are fitting in with it or not, right? It seems like the core competencies of product are as important as ever. Even if you have revenue coming in, you have to do the work to understand what are the problems we're really solving for our various customers? What are they asking for versus what are we solving? And I, you kind of have two pieces there. One is making sure you have a sense of that. You know what you're building and why for your different customer groups and how that fits into your larger product strategy so that you're building a house that, that works together. Um, but also then I imagine there's an element of learning to communicate those things to your clients because that's kind of a step maybe you don't fully have with consumer where you just solve their problems and that's that. With with enterprise, you got to convince the buyers who may not be the users of the product even within an enterprise. So I'd, I'd love to hear a little bit about how do you handle the communication piece once – like assuming that you're doing the product pieces of understanding the problems. Well, that's a great point because you know if you – if you do product management well in B2C and then you release the product out there, then it would just get a good response. You don't need that. There's not much of a – no need for a two-way dialogue as much, I guess. But obviously, there's – in discovery. On the, on the enterprise, the communication piece, I think that's it, it's really important. One is communicating your vision. But two is when that big client comes at you with the request feature X, how do you handle that? Like that's – you can't just be like, sorry, that's a solution. Don't talk to me. Like that's not going to work. So – and I just gave a workshop – where I you know, was recommending what to do, which is basically like say, hey, big client X, I totally hear that you want us to build feature X for you. Got it. You know, Acknowledge the request. And then what I like to do is just a little judo trick and go, Yo, hey, just so we can make sure that we build it in a way that's going to work really well for you. Can you help me understand what problem it's going to solve for you? you know, why is it going to be valuable to you? So it's really this facilitation of the conversation to gently – try to get them to bridge from solution space to problem space, right? And and, and it can be tough. I, I just taught this workshop and somebody said, yeah, it took inside their company, they had a business partner. So this happens inside of companies too, as you were saying, they had a business partner. And like, yeah, it took us three meetings to try to finally, you know, get them to think about the problem. And then they finally, it was like an aha moment, right? Because we don't think that way normally. Like we live in the solution space. The D, everyone's default mode of thinking is solution space, right? Devs have to ship working code in the solution space. Designers have to ship working mockups in the solution space, right? So, so that's part of it too, is facilitating that conversation. And part of it is you need to be at the table because if the only one sitting with the client is sales and they're like the middle person, you don't even get a chance to have direct exposure to the customer, which is another big deal, right? That's, that's the other thing is in B2C, usually it's pretty easy. Oh, you want to find some Facebook users? Just throw a stick and you can go find, no big deal, right? You can go find B2C customers, Twitter customers, whatever you want, you can find them. In B2B, they're usually busy. They may be hard to track down, those kind of things. Um, and and then even then, you might have people in the company actively preventing you. Hey, what do you mean, Zach? You want to talk to Big Client X? No, no, no. They're up for renewal in a month. I don't, I don't want you putting your fruit in your mouth and ruining this deal. No, no, no. That's my client. You know, you literally have people blocking you from talking to customers sometimes. Which uh, and so you know, and you you want to get to the point where you can be in those conversations with the customers. So when they, when they propose a solution, instead of, if you weren't there, the salesperson just writing it down and coming back and just repeating the solution request in the moment, you can try to facilitate that problem space dialogue, right? Uh, so that you can try to get at the details of it. So what are the, uh, tools in the toolkit that you've amassed or, or the situation when you're in facing the solution from a customer or a client that you kind of pull out immediately? Is this, I mean, you mentioned one of those things of like, you know, backing up and saying, well, help me on, help me build this the right way. What is the problem you're solving? What other kind of techniques could you use in the moment while you're experiencing that? Well, that's the biggest one. It's really, it's, it's really asking why, not necessarily literally why, because you don't want to be like a toddler, like why, 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 why? Or you have to, so you have to mix it up and be like, why would that be valuable to Can you help me understand how that would create value for you? Can you help me understand how that would help you be more successful, right? And, um, and so that's, uh, I mean, I've just described it very quickly, but that is, that is a hard skill and there's different levels of it. And, 
Um, obviously, it doesn't always go well, depending on the person and depending on what's going on. So the other thing that I like to do, I was just recommending this is if during that conversation, you can actually like project like a Google doc on the screen so they can see you typing, like you're typing what they're saying. You see what I mean? You're like co-creating it. Like, you know, you put in feature X and you say, what problem does feature X solve? And then you say, Hey, can you tell me? And then you write down what they say, because usually if they're not that fluent in it, they're not going to describe the problem perfectly the first time. It's going to be an iterative thing. And they're going to tell you the wrong problem. And they're going to talk about it. So what you want to do is get into a dialogue. And they may say, well, it's about this. And then you start talking about it. It's like, oh, it's actually about making my sales force more productive. Oh, yeah, that's what it really is. You know, and then you put, you put the whole stream of consciousness in a Google Doc that you can capture. And then, and then the light bulb will go off. They'll say, oh, yeah, it's really all about that. And now we're all on the same page about what the problem is. So, so that's one. The other one is specific to if they have a lot of requests is trying to like do some prioritization techniques with them. So we really understand what's the most. Yeah, I know you're asking for six things, but what really here is really important and what, you know, is a little less important. You know, those are some, some techniques too, but also once you, once you get in the problem space, then you can use like frameworks like my importance versus satisfaction framework. You say, okay, let's, you mentioned six problems. Let's talk about the relative importance of these problems. Again, it's a prioritization exercise. What's the relative importance? What's the, out of these five, what's the most important problem? And then what's the least important, you know? How do you get them to be receptive to that type of environment of co-creation when you're kind of, maybe the bridge or the access is like a sales call. Like how do the enterprise PMs get the space time in that time? Yeah. You got to kind of be, have a seat at the table with, with them. Right. And, and kind of agree with your salesperson ahead of time, the rules of the road for the meeting or whatever. Right. So that we want to do that. Right. So as far as motivation goes, uh, one of the best motivators is, is failure. So if you've already sell, you've already taken this solution centric sales approach and we built a few things and then it wasn't successful, then that can kind of make people, Hey, maybe we should do, maybe we should do it a different way. Right. When people, when people bring me in as a consultant, it's usually not, it's cause they've already had, they've tried things a different way. Yeah. And then the other thing that's really important too, Zach briefly touched on this, which is, Hey, we may be able to get the sale. Maybe you've got you know a very charming salesperson, or maybe he went to college with the guy. Who knows? Plays golf with the guy. Who knows why the deal closed? Right? <laughs> you know, like in B two B, that can be why the deal closed, not because you have an amazing product. But then once the contract's up, that's when you really get the measure of what's your product market fit, right? And if you have good product market fit, then they're going to renew. And if you don't have good product market fit, they're going to go, yeah, you know, you kind of sold us a bill of goods there. We're not going to renew, right? And that's why I like to distinguish between purchase market fit. And product market fit. Just because you sell it doesn't mean you really have product market fit. You know, some people are like, I teach all my stuff, like, Dan, 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 we signed the contract. We got the money in the bank. Why do we care? I'm like, well, you're going to care in a year when it's time to renew. <laughs> I've experienced this on the client side. Like, I've worked on several products where I, I had to work with other companies selling enterprise products that we were using to build our product. And there were, several companies where I only ever heard from the salespeople, the account representatives, and they were nice. They were great. But I noticed there was a notable difference between them. And then, you know, we worked with Stripe for a, a billing integration. And I noticed with Stripe regularly, their salespeople, it was like they were partners with their product team because I would regular, they would reach out and say, Hey, here's so-and-so who's a product manager on this, you know, on our uh, radar fraud detection product. And they want to work with you on some of the problems you're seeing to help improve the service and make sure we're addressing your needs. And they kind of organically made it feel like this was part of the process of them solving our problems. But I, I think, you know, this is where leadership can really come into play. I think at a B2B enterprise company is making sure you're, you're setting up your product and uh, sales or, you know, account partnerships teams so that they're, they're kind of tag teaming. How do we solve these problems? And on the one hand, that's product getting a seat at the table. And on the other, that's understanding like some of the trade-offs that are important to make to be able to close deals and kind of like having those conversations. I think sometimes you get set up in these silos between product and sales. So that's exactly what I was thinking is, you know, in the product world, we always think of the Venn diagram, like one circles, product management, one circles, engineering, one circles, UX. And those three circles can like have no overlap, which like they're not coordinating in their silos or they can be like, you know, overlap a lot. So the degree to which they overlap is like represents the degree to which they're collaborating effectively. Same thing. You have a circle for PM and a circle for sales and they can be silos, you know, where sales just throwing stuff over the wall saying, here's what you got to build because I signed the contract. Right. 
And that's, that's very uh, demotivating as a PM when, if you, you know, and so there's a balancing act to the culture piece, you know, there's a balancing act and there are plenty of companies that are sales driven, right? Where sales calls the shots and they are, you know, every, you know, PM is kind of downstream of what they say. There are other companies that are engineering driven, you know, engineering's calling the shots, uh, right? And then there are some companies where there's more of a balance between engineering, PM, and sales. And so that's that's the thing. To your point, you want it to be a partnership, um, which gets at what kind of culture and expectations is a CEO setting? What kind of relationship does the head of sales and the head of product have? You know, those kind of things, right? If you're in that type of situation where it is sales-led, for example, or there's not collaboration, do you run? What's the? <laughs> I mean, how do you, how do you, you foster know, more collaboration within that? The, yeah, the how do you change the culture, times- right? The yeah. number of times I've, I've had took a question after one of my talks or workshops from a PM is like, what if all this stuff is going on? I was like, uh, you might want to go somewhere else. You know, I've tried for two years. You know, if you feel like you're banging your head, like, look, give it a good try. Uh, if you feel like you're banging your head against the wall and nothing's changing, then yeah, you know, luckily we live in a good time where product management is valued and hopefully you can find Maybe, I can't emphasize know, that point enough, though, because I feel like a lot of the folks, at least the, the ones that I've talked to um, that, that are kind of jumping around positions in yeah. this time, um, some of us are kind of attracted to like solving problems and some of the problems we want to solve is organizationally or like uh-huh. we see a broken sure. enterprise, sure. we see opportunity within a market. And so we think, oh, we'll join that and fix that problem. Sure, but then sure, it sure. becomes this whole thing of, you know, solving the culture problem as opposed to solving a, you know, bringing a product to market and solving for that yeah, industry. Yeah, it's usually right? not a process problem. So I hear you. And the challenge is you have to be honest about what's my ability to influence this. Now, if you're the VP of product you're, or CPO, your ability to influence it might be higher. If you're a PM or an SPM, you can fight the good fight, but I don't think you're going to turn the battleship probably, right? I mean, it's it's usually the issue is with the other orgs. Like unless the head of sales says we need to, you know, and they're, you know, culture doesn't change on a dime, right? It's like, you know, someone's got to get fired or replaced. And even then it has a lot of momentum in it, right? So, yeah. So it's an interesting thing of like, you know, why do company why do companies have the culture that they have? Why do they have the good or bad collaboration between functions that they have? And I think it starts out with the founders and, you know, that's where it started. And then who did they hire and what expectations were set and what behavior did they reinforce or not? Right. So I think, I think those are really important things to keep in mind. Something else that we've talked about that I'd love to learn a little bit more about is this idea of, you know, okay, let's assume that we have, we have good communication product has a seat at the table. We're meeting with our different clients and starting to understand their needs. There's a difference between maybe the buyer or purchaser of a product at an enterprise and the users of a product. How do you make sure you can serve the needs of both those end users as well as the buyers so that you can not only hit the purchase market fit, but also hit the product market fit? Yeah, and that's another important distinction between B2C and B2B. In B2C, usually the buyer is the user. Right? If you're buying that game or app, you are. And so you end up with these two very different you know, personas you have to address, right? If you, if you plot out the kind of target market, I always talk about getting clear on your target customers, right? In B2C, it's probably going to be one type. You might have different flavors, but there's one person. In B2B, at, at a minimum, you usually have two. Like you said, you have a buyer persona and a user persona, and they have different needs. You might even have more, to be honest with you, in your purchase decision. If you map out who needs to sign off on the purchase decision? There is another category of people that are involved with purchase decisions. I call them blockers. They don't really care. They're not like they're not evaluating the functionality. It's like the security team. Hey, you have 256-bit encryption. So these are people that can block a deal if it doesn't meet whatever bureaucratic requirement, you know, whatever requirements are in their part of the world, privacy, legal, right? They're blocker people. But the, the economic buyer is the one who's signing the check. And they have to decide that this is, you know, worth, is worthwhile. Like the value we're going to get to the organization is higher than the amount we're going to pay you, right? So, so what I always advise is to get clear on your target customer, you know, buyer, end user. And then for each of those, for each of those, you know, have the product market for pyramid. You need to work the pyramid for each. So for each one of those, what, what are their problems or needs that they care about? And then what are our unmet needs that we want to address? And usually for the buyer, I actually have a slide from this from the talk that I gave. For the buyer, you know, it's it's more uh, 
like economic financial related things, right? Here we go. Like price and value, compliance, your reputation, like social proof. Hey, who else has bought you? Has, has IBM used you? What other big companies have you guys, right? Productivity, cost reduction, or growing revenue, right? They're looking at those high level financial benefits. They're hoping, you know, they're going to get your product to grow the revenue, to increase productivity, reduce their costs, something like that. Whereas the end users, they also care about productivity more from the standpoint of streamlining their workflow, you know, filling in gaps that they don't have today, ease of use, things like that, more functional benefits. And as we said, you know, you need to meet the buyer's goals needs to sell it. But then if you don't meet the user's needs, then they're not going to renew, right? And, um, and usually you do a pilot anyway. And so if your product's not that good in a pilot, it's not going to get past the pilot stage anyway, right? So, and a lot of times I get the question, well, what should you focus on first? Unfortunately, you have to do both. The question is how deep do you go in each, right? How deep do you go? Do you spend 90% of your resources on buyer stuff and 10, you know, on users? That's probably out of whack and, and vice versa is probably out of whack too. So, um, you know, I think luckily... The common denominator is they both want the end users to be productive, to be able to do whatever they need to do with the product, to have it be easy to use, to get whatever financial benefit they want. And so that's the common ground usually, but um, yeah, they're both important. And, and so it's it's tough to, to try to prioritize, but you have to prioritize the cost of those. It, it kind of reminds me of, I think, one of your previous uh, presentations, you talked about table stakes, performance drivers. And uh, was it delighters, I think? And so kind of similar that, you know, the the table stakes, maybe a lot of the buyer stuff might fit into that where it's like, if we don't have certain features or checkboxes, we're just not going to get through the front door. Uh, but then performance drivers, maybe that's a buyer thing. But if we can really drive performance for the end users and if we can delight the end users, then we're likely to hit that, that uh, kind of renewal and really – really make something that's worthwhile to the enterprise in the longer run. Yeah, that's where you're bringing up the Kano model. It's a must-have performance and delighters, you know, three different categories of best of benefits. And you're right, a lot of those check, like, especially for the blocker people, security, legal, privacy, those are the must-haves. Like, you just have to have, like, HIPAA if you're in health tech, right, healthcare. Um, and then usually the buyer, the top performance they care about is kind of like, you know, value, you know, price-to-value kind of thing of whatever it is they're doing, you know, whatever – they're buying you so that like their ad effectiveness can be 50% better, right? That's, there's usually one performance dimension that they're looking for you on, right? And then to your point, um, with the end users, they're going to be looking for, you know, functional benefits, better productivity. If you have some delighters in there, that's going to make their user experience a lot better as well. So, yeah. Yeah. Whereas the buyer's not living in the product. It's usually the buyer's not even using the product. So by definition, anything in the UX or feature set, isn't going to impress them. It's like, what does it enable their team to do? That's what they care about, right? Maybe we could talk about another scenario here. I'd love to kind of throw us in and use this as an example, but let's say that maybe you're, we're joining in as a, in a product organization, or it might be a sales led organization, startup, enterprise focused product. And we sell something to an enterprise pro, uh, partner and we have a deadline to meet before Q4, we need to ship a bunch of features that we agreed to before we were even involved in those conversations, right? Now, how how many times have you seen that? I'm curious. And then uh, what are kind of ways to kind of, if you're in those situations, uh, deal with it? Yeah, I joked in my talk. I basically joked uh, and I, I basically said like, you know, what's so special about March 31st, June 30th and September 30th? There's something magical about these dates. Like so much B2B software ships on those three dates out of all. It's like, you know, it's like the B2B fairy comes and sprinkles some pixie dust. You know, it's these arbitrary end of quarter deadlines, right? That's just, you know, and uh, that stuff ships. So that's what I call fixed date mindset. And and I talk about the, the triangle software development where you got like resources, time, scope, and quality. And unfortunately... Usually companies are not, they don't invest enough and don't do a good enough job in estimating the scope. So their roadmaps are like, eh, you know, yeah, I think, you know, it's kind of aspirational. These are aspirational roadmaps and no one's in a position to say, no, there's no way we can do all that. So like, yeah, maybe I'm not saying we can't, but I don't, you know, like, just, and we all know the stuff at the beginning of the quarter is more likely to get done. The stuff at the end of the quarter, there's a very good chance that would just slip off into the next quarter, right? 
So, so that's part of the, that, you know, that's tough. And what, what, what I like to do, and, and I've seen this happen where things are so broken and siloized that sales is making commitments without checking in with product at all. And that is, you know, that's, I understand the need to get revenue and things like that, but there's something just broken from a governance standpoint, if that's the case. Right. And, and it's funny because one of my clients, they're very successful. They were very successful in the IPO later and things like that. They're, you know, unicorn, all that. They actually had a pretty robust feature set. And so it's like, why are we even doing customer requests? Like we have a really robust feature set. So they hired a new head of product and he saw that this was going on. You know, it wasn't as bad as it wasn't horrible, but it was like still we were building some custom things for people. And so they came up with this great saying, he got buy-in, which is like, hey, just sell what's on the truck. Like, imagine you have like a food truck or something. It's like, hey, instead of making you some custom dish, like, dude, we have all this amazing food. You want a burrito? You want a hamburger? What do you want? Just, just sell what's on the truck. You know, that's what they would say to the salespeople. Like, you know, sell what's on the truck. If you really, really need to make something custom, we'll create a path to escalate that and discuss it in the proper forum with the head of product and the CEO, right? So there was a way to do it. But instead of it just being the Wild West, if anybody could create, you know, sell any kind of food item they wanted, it's like, just sell. We have a lot of good stuff. Just sell. We are. So at some point, you need to lock that down. If that's going on, you need to just be like, hey, you know, we need to have some way that we confer before we commit to these things. Because that, cause that's also super disruptive. Because if you have your own roadmap and you're planning everything out and there's constant influx of new features getting injected with dates, the worst thing is, and there's always a date in a contract, right? You know, Google wants features A, B, and C, and we committed to, you know, August, you know, September 30th. That's because we, so, so it's not fun. In that scenario, like, um, do you see teams planning in, in the form of, you know, the big rocks where you have like that Gantt roadmap planning uh, approach, or do you see teams more approach it outcome driven where it's OKR driven? No, it's just the only outcome in those situations is revenue. It's big deal, closing big deal revenue. That's the only OKR or outcome. That's so it's all feature, mm-hmm. Gantt chart kind of planning and, and roadmap organization. Yeah, it's just and it's, it's really just PM might have a roadmap with their big rocks on it, but then sales close some big deal, and then we suddenly need to build this whole new product or feature for them. It's like a meteor coming in. It's like, just like your roadmap just gets blown up, right? All, you know, this big, huge rock comes in and you have to bump a lot of stuff out. So there's always going to be disruption and change in a roadmap. We're not saying it's going to be perfectly buttoned down and never change, but those, those kind of, you know, meteors can be, can be very disruptive, right? So, um, and it's hard because, you know, you don't know in a sense, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a juggling act because you have an opinion about what you, you think you should build that's going to be valuable to the marketplace kind of somewhat in the abstract, then sales is out there talking to actual customers and they may say, yeah, that one thing on your roadmap, that makes sense. But these other two, nah, that doesn't make sense. So it's like you're, you're trying to close the gap, right, over time. And, and when you first start the startup, that's probably when you have the biggest gap. You think you know what they want. They're asking you for specific things. After you get a few customers under your belt, you can start to see patterns and, and make a better picture, a better roadmap, right? So so yeah. it's tough. I, I particularly love that analogy about the food truck of, you know, let's sell what's on the truck. But that does there is a requisite there, and that is that you have to have products that are in the truck and are things that people conceivably want. And right. So there's a mix of like and I think that the example you gave, the product <laughs> exactly. All you have is vegetables and I want something terrible for me. Um yeah, the product team in, in your example clearly had done enough work to understand some of the core problems that they were solving so that the things they had on the truck were palatable. Uh, and then there's maybe occasional things that came up. So I think that's a great place to try and get to, but also make sure that make sure that we're putting the right things in the truck in the first place. That's true. Yeah. They, and it was a unique situation where they had been bootstrapped for a long time. So they had the luxury of a lot of time to build a very robust platform. And then they were growing. So they were getting these potential Winchester mystery house requests in that growth, hyper growth thing. Right. And so that was when luckily they had enough food options on the truck at that point, to your point, an early stage startup doesn't have that many food items on the truck yet. So all the more reason to make sure, you know, what, like we're a burrito truck. This is what we do for now. Here's why we think burritos are good. Here's the burrito market. Sell burritos to people that want burritos. Don't be starting chicken filet sandwiches. And then maybe we'll expand from burritos into tacos down the road, you know? So let's say, 
you know, as a product manager, one of the things we need to do is test our ideas and see, like, to try and get a sense of what's going to solve problems, ideally without investing too many, too much time, too many developer resources, design cycles, whatever it is. Um, and I think in consumer, sometimes you can maybe get that a little faster because of some of the different layers and additional complexities of large organizations that we've talked about. That can be a little bit harder. So I'd, I'd love to hear your thoughts on how can a, a enterprise product manager effectively test some of their new ideas quickly, build out MVPs, things like this, despite working with, say, client deadlines and all of these different layers of expectations and and whatnot? Well, one part of it is, we touched on briefly, is access to clients. You know, say you've got your prototype ready to show somebody, you know, are you able to drum up some clients or prospective clients to show it to, right? And this is where, again, you might get blocked, (laughs) By people saying, no, 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 don't talk to client X, right? And you also certainly, you can't ping them every week. Hey, Bill, VP of marketing at this Fortune 100 company. I got, you know, can I take another hour of your time? Right? So there's, so, so one thing, one best practice that enterprise companies do to get out of this trap of, gosh, how do I make sure I have customers I can talk to when I need to, is to create a customer advisory board or a council, right? Where it's basically, you flip it around, instead of having to ask permission every time, you get a group of customers to opt in and they say, hey, I'm down for being on your customer advisory council. So you have a pool of pre-approved people you can reach out to so you don't have to waste time asking for permission and checking before you go, right? All that jazz. Um, and then the other thing is, and this is just in general, you know, if you wait till you have the prototype and go, okay, hey, Zach, we got the prototype. Let's go recruit 10 users and schedule it so we can get feedback. By the time that happens, three or four weeks have gone by, like the train left the station, right? No one's going to sit around and wait. So you've got this issue of how do we make sure we increase the odds that we've got the users available when we need them. What you end up doing is just setting up recurring meetings. Hey, you know what? Like like the first week, first Tuesday of the month or like first and third Tuesdays of the month, let's just schedule four customers per day. We don't know right now what we're going to ask them, but by the time it comes around, we're going to ask them. So those are some ways to accelerate, get out of this trap of, okay, we're ready to talk to users. Let's go find them and schedule them because that's never going to work out. That's one thing. Um, the other thing you mentioned, MVP. You know, MVP is probably the most hotly debated and disagreed upon topic in the product world, right? You've got people making alternate acronyms: MLP, minimum level product, minimum sellable product, minimum marketable feature. People are just making up their own things, and many people are like, you know, I think we should just stop using MVP because nobody can agree on it. I'm like, well, you get rid of the term, it doesn't solve the problem. People still aren't agreeing, right? So I find that especially in enterprise, it's a, it's a bit worse than in consumer where – and I just was – you know, I just did a workshop and I, ha- I asked people and I have, this, I have this scale and to find where people live on the MVP continuum. I'm like, I'm like could a landing page be an MVP? And usually like 80-plus percent of people are like, nah, landing page can't be an MVP. There might be like 10% of people like, yeah, I think you could learn something from a landing page. I, I don't see why not. And then next thing up, I'm like, what if it's something the user can can kind of see what the product will look like, but they can't use, like a set of mock-ups, static mock-ups. Is that an MVP? And then you get you know a few more percentage people saying, yeah, I guess a mock-up could be. And then the next one is, what if it's something they can interact with, like an interactive prototype, clickable, tappable prototype? And now we start getting more people jumping on getting on board. And then I'm like, what about if it's something they can use, like an alpha? It's not the final product. It's an alpha or proof of concept. At this point, most people are like, yeah, that meets the criteria MVP for me. But I still have some hardcore holdouts. They're like, unless the user can buy it, it's not an MVP. So that's like the final one is, can they pay for it? It's like a publicly available product. So you see opinions all over that board across that spectrum. And the fundamental difference of opinion is the hardcore MVP people are like, Dan, don't you know what P means? P stands for product. A landing page isn't a product. The mock-up's not a product. You can't use it. So no, those aren't right. And then the people on the other end of the spectrum are like, hey, man, why you got to be so uptight? Anything you can learn from is an MVP. You know, like So, so it's like, Trying to fit everything into that one word is is the problem, right? And and in my book, the first for the first solution stab I took at trying to resolve this is, hey, what if we just go up one level and call them all MVP tests or MVP experiments, but we reserve MVP for the true MVPs that, that us and the hardcore people know are the only real MVPs. 
would that be okay? And they kind of begrudgingly say, yeah, I guess so. So that was kind of my first stab at it. These days I'm using the terms MVP to mean the product, MVP prototype to mean a representation of the product that we want to test with people. So those two help. It's like, are you talking about an MVP or an MVP prototype? And then behind both of those is yet a third concept, which is I'm just trying to get clarity on what's the scope of functionality we plan to have in the MVP, whether it's a prototype or it's the live product. And that's the real thought part of it is what scope needs to be in there or not, whether we end up prototyping it or we end up building it, right? But for whatever reason in enterprise, they skew more towards it's got to be a working product. And those companies tend to go straight from feature ideas to building it. And they're less likely to prototype it and get feedback, which, as we know, is a very risky way to do things. Not all enterprise companies like that. Don't get me wrong. There are plenty that do. But for some reason, they're like, we got to build it. We got to ship it. Our clients, you know, they feel like because their clients are Fortune 100 or Fortune 500, the bar is somehow way higher, you know, and like, oh, we and a lot of times people play the brand card. We have a brand. We can't we can't risk the brand. We can't put a shoddy MVP out there. It's going to mess up the brand, you know, and it's like. Um, you know, like part of it is, yeah, maybe you shouldn't show your rough MVP to IBM. Maybe you, 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 you warm up with someone else, right? (laughs) You start out with another client and you work your way there, right? So part of the issue too is people feel like the only option is you either launch the MVP or you don't. And part of the MVP mindset is not breaking, only breaking down the functionality, but breaking down, well, which subset of the client of the market are we going to expose this to? And so my initial MVP that's not doesn't have the full feature set, I'm not going to take that to my most demanding customers. I'm going to identify the specific subset within my market that I think is going to get by with those four features, and I'm going to start with them, right, and get feedback. And then in the next few months, I'm going to add a few more features. Even starting more specific than that, the one customer, right? Can I yes, solve this exactly. for one person? And right. then it's right. less, you know... Ju- generalized or peanut buttered for a group, a segment right. of users that you assume right. all these criteria, right? You solve it for that one individual, right. then you start to scale up. It's true. You just have to make sure the one you pick isn't idiosyncratic. If you pick the one legal company that does things in a wonky way and you build your workflow that way, and then you go next, Hey, we got this. Like, what is this? So, so you want to do it, but your point is true. You basically, you want to do both. You want to kind of try to pattern match at the high level to make sure, you know, what you're building is not specific. But then you do want to get in the foxhole, like a private beta with a with a few customers, or just making sure you pick one that's typical. If you make sure the one you pick is typical, that could be that's another great way to accelerate this customer feedback loop is a private beta with a prototypical company, and then you, they and then and then the incentive for them is, hey, if we're working with you, it's going to get shaped. The product's going to get shaped to meet our needs better. We're going to have a louder voice on the prioritization and things like that. That's interesting. You'd solve for that individual or that, yeah, that, that very uh, small use case. And then, but you make decisions in the product that aren't like the one way doors, right? It's like you make the decisions in the product that can then be scaled would be an interesting take on that. We talked a lot. We went all over the place with enterprise. There's so many juicy topics here. I feel like we could talk for uh, hours. <laughs> but um, yes. in in the uh, um, uh, essence of our time that we have together here, let's wrap it up with some homework for our listeners this week. If you were to give one item of something, something that um, our listeners can put into practice next week as they're listening to this, what would that be? I mean, there's a lot of things they could do. The one thing I would say is keep an ear out for solutionitis. Like next time a salesperson or a key stakeholder or a client requests something, stop and ask yourself, are they asking me for a solution? Or are they telling me a problem? And odds are it's probably a solution. And so try to build that skill that we talked about, which is say, hey, I hear you asking for feature X. Try to help them bridge to the problem space and help and co-explore the problem space with them by saying, hey, can you help me understand you know, why that feature would be valuable to you, right? Just trying to do that you know, there's these stats about why a high percentage of products fail. One of the number one reasons they fail is they started in the solution space. You know, it's kind of like ready, fire, aim. Let's go build this thing. What problem are we solving? I don't know. Let's just build it and ship it, right? So so that would be the top thing. You know, it's kind of it's kind of fundamental and it's philosophical, but I think it, it hopefully can change the nature of the conversations over time. Love it. Well, thank you. And then Zach, anything that you would have for the listeners this week? I would say if you don't already have a 
customer pool or advisory board of some kind. Talk to your your best friend in sales or you know the sale somewhere someone in the sales team, uh, maybe your your head of product as well if possible, and see if you can start putting together some some notion of an advisory board so that you can get some of that regular feedback. So that as you're talking to whether it's the buyers or the end users or your salespeople, um, you can orient people back to the problem spaces you're solving for with some anecdotal data straight from the types of people you're actually building. Yeah, and I would build on that. A lot of the disagreements and difference of opinion within the building between sales and product, it's people's opinions and neither one of them talk to a customer about it. And so what I like about what you said is let's get some real customer data. So instead of us just arguing from our guts and opinions that you that gives you that leverage as a PM to say, yeah, I know we're arguing this thing. Well, just yesterday in the customer advisory council, Big Client X said this is this is how they view it and this is why it's important to them. That's that's good firsthand customer evidence you can use. Last but not least, love to plug Dan's upcoming workshop Denver in Denver on Wednesday, September 21st on the Denver Startup Week during that week. You're also speaking at Keynote. Was that on Tuesday? Is that right? The 20th? Yeah, okay. Tuesday the, the 20th, 20th, 4 o'clock. Yep. Yeah, I'm excited for that. If you're in Denver and come come attend some of these events, um, the workshop is at Industries Rhino Station. It's from 9 to 5.15, and we'll have a link to the event in our podcast description. But uh, to touch on the contents, are you going to be discussing the enterprise product management? What is kind of the, the gist of the workshop to share? Not specifically. It's going to be like a one-day version of my book, The Lean Product Playbook, right? I mean, there's a lot of overlap whether it's B2C or B2B, but we already have some enterprise PMs signed up for it. Usually my workshop, my public workshops are going to mix a B2C and B2B in different company sizes. So, um, and certainly there's plenty of time for questions. So if people have enterprise specific questions, they can get their specific questions answered for sure. But it should be a good time. I'm really excited to be out in person in Denver for Denver Startup Week to give the talk to it. On, on Tuesday, the 20th at four to five, I'm giving a keynote on product strategy, actually is what they asked me to talk about, which should be a good talk where I'll get into the, the Kano model of must-haves, performance, and delighters and how to use that to clarify your product strategy. Right after that, I think there's a Colorado product happy hour, or there's a happy hour where a bunch of PMs. So if you're a PM in the Denver area, stop by Startup Week Tuesday, September 20th at 5 o'clock so we can network now that we're getting back together in person. And then, yeah, I'm excited to teach the all-day workshop. You know, haven't been to Denver in a while. I teach, you know, before COVID, I would teach a lot of workshops here in the Bay Area, but I'm really excited because I know there's a lot of tech and a lot of PM out in Denver. So it should be fun. Awesome. Well, thanks so much, Dan, for coming on the podcast again. Um, it's been great to kind of chat about some of this with you. Excited to see you during Denver Startup Week and hope to have you again in the future. Yeah. Thanks a lot, Kevin and Zach. Always great talking with you. And I'm excited to see you in person shortly yeah. here. Well, it looks like we finished up our coffee. So go level up. This has been Product Coffee, produced and engineered by me, Kevin Gentry. Through our podcast partner, Anchor, you can now record a voice message and send us ideas or topics to cover, and who knows, we might end up playing it on the show. You can also become a supporter of Product Coffee by contributing a monthly donation to help us sustain future episodes. Please rate, review, and subscribe to Product Coffee on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.